When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Age 78, Colonel Parker generally declines interviews, but he agreed to talk to us earlier today from Las Vegas. It is generally conceded, uh, Colonel Parker, and to those who don't know it, let's tell them right now that Elvis's success was part Elvis, part Colonel Parker. Which part was yours? Because that was the less vis visible part. I think mine was the least part. rock and or roll. I'm your reluctant host, BJ. So years ago, I was working on a project and I collected and read pretty much every book I could get my hands on about and relating to Elvis Presley. And one of those books was this amazing book published by Cooper Square Press in 2001 and written by James L. Dickerson about the life of Elvis's manager. Colonel Tom Parker. And this book always stuck with me because the story 
of the colonel's life and the way that he mismanaged and exploited Elvis's talents and steered Elvis Presley's career was both fascinating and disturbing. So when I started thinking about somehow devoting an episode to that story, uh, the story of Colonel Tom Parker, the obvious thing to do was to contact author James Dickerson and ask him if he'd join me for the episode, and he graciously said yes. So I'm very excited to present to you my conversation about Colonel Tom Parker with author James Dickerson. James has written many books, including two different memoirs with Elvis's original guitar player and Blue Moon Boy's bandmate Scotty Moore, and James currently runs a publishing company called the Sartorius Literary Group, and they've been publishing some really cool rock-related books. He'll speak a little about that at the end of the episode. Also, you can currently purchase a Kindle edition version of the book we'll be discussing today about Colonel Tom by James Dickerson at Amazon.com for $15.99. And it's highly recommended, and there will be a link at the blog post for this episode for where you can get that book. Like I said, highly recommended book, just a fascinating read. So here it is, my conversation with author James L. Dickerson about Colonel Tom Parker. I think Presley was a star from the first day he ever started going into show business. I think anyone could have helped him that knows something about show business. What do you think your greatest value has been to him to... to I, uh, well, what has been your I think my experience and uh, in a small way handling his future with making contracts where perhaps someone would offer a certain amount of money and I thought this artist was worth more and I held out for my price. contacted you because you wrote uh, this fascinating book, I guess, what, about 15 years ago or so? It was published 15 years ago, so I probably wrote it 16 years ago. Yeah, right. Um, It's called Colonel Tom Parker, The Curious Life of Elvis Presley's Eccentric Manager. And you had, previous to this, you had written a book with Scotty Moore, right? So is that sort of how you came to cover this topic, or...? Well, my first book was called uh, uh, Going Back to Memphis, and it was a hundred-year history of Memphis music. And uh, I touched on this topic, Colonel Tom and Scotty and Elvis, in that book. And then um, I finally 
met Scotty, and he was agreeable to, to writing a book. So I wrote his memoir with him. And so by then, I was pretty well versed on Colonel Tom Parker, and, and he seemed like the most logical person to write about next. Right, and there and there aren't a lot of books out there about him. There was another. There's another book I have called Elvis and the Colonel. I think I think Mick Wall co-wrote right. that. But you have a lot of you have a lot of information in your book that I hadn't really read anywhere else. What kind of research did you do for this book? Well, I I of course I had uh, the confidence of Scotty Moore. Right, uh, and so. Um, I, I interviewed him about it quite a bit, but I sometimes uh, you will write a biography, or at least I will, and I will put behavioral slant on it, trying to explain somebody's behavior. Right. Uh, I've done that with several biographies. Uh, I've got a mental health background, so that comes kind of naturally. I've also got a background as an investigative journalist, so I thought with Colonel Tom, that was the approach I need to take. Uh, and I did a lot of investigative work and, and, and uncovered a lot of sources and and presented some things that nobody had ever heard about before. So it, it was an in, intensive process of doing the research. Yeah, one can tell from reading the book um, that a lot of research went into it. Uh, for example, I guess it wasn't a revelation in your book that he emigrated from Holland, but the the story in your book that you believe he was actually born in Russia to Jewish parents. Um, do you, do you know where that information comes from? Do you remember? Well, it's it's been pretty well documented at this point that he he lived in Holland, and his name was Andreas van Kack. Oh, uh, that's how Kack. you pronounce it. Okay. Yeah, but when when you do a lot of writing like I do, you you look and you're, and so he was obviously an immigrant. He was in Holland at some point, and he entered this country through the port of Tampa. Now, in those days, Tampa, you 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 didn't have to show any paperwork if you showed up on a ship at Tampa. Right. Was this the you late twenties, probably? Twenty. Yeah. Yeah. You you just you just entered the country, and so what you do when you're writing about an immigrant, you look any any immigrant. If you you if it's an Italian immigrant, you look and you notice that they congregate around other Italians as they uh, blend into American society. That's that's sort of natural, and it goes that way uh, with African Americans, with French, with any group. And what I saw when I started looking into where did, who did he congregate with? Who, who was he attracted to in the beginning and through, throughout his life? And, and it was Jews and not Dutch people. Right. And so, uh, you know, there was traffic from Russia to, to going through Holland and, and then people coming to this country. And so I looked at his associates and I looked at, at the fact that there was no definition that he was actually born in Holland. There's, there's plenty of evidence that he lived there. And even if I saw evidence that he was born there, then I'd wonder if that was his real name, just because I'm like that. Right. Well, yeah, and, especially with the colonel, you have to be, you have to wonder right. about everything. Yeah. yeah, he's very elusive. So I said in the book, I said, okay, he, he's, he's either from 
Holland. He was born in Holland. He's Dutch. Or he was one of many uh, Russian Jews that that emigrated uh, through uh, through many European countries to come to this country. And it was a tough time to to be a Jew, and and uh, and they were really not welcome in America because of, of prejudice. And this was while Hitler was building up his his empire, anti-Jewish empire. As a matter of fact, uh, during World War II, Jews showed up in ships to this country, and we would not let them in. We put them in boxcars, and we sent them to New York to a concentration camp called Camp Ontario. And so, I mean, in that that was in the 40s and in the 30s. There were there were restrictions on how many Jews could come to this country. It was very few. So anyway, I look. I just looked at the people he was drawn to, the people that he hung out with, the people that he did business with. So I raised that question. I didn't say he was of, of Russian Jewish ancestry. I said that's a possibility, along with with his with him having been born in Holland. So, I mean, even now I'm still not sure which. Right. Uh, but it was one of the two. <laughs> And and whether or not he was born into that that van how's it van Keck, Keck van Keck whether or not he was born into that family or sort of adopted or taken in by them he had they had nine other children or something like that right right and, right and so when he left Holland and left his parents or his adoptive parents and all of those siblings he just really never looked back it seems right right he he uh, he never looked back and when. When he had to start introducing himself in this country, he said he was from West Virginia. I mean, he had that heavy accent, European accent. And uh, people would look at each other saying, he doesn't sound like anybody I've ever heard from West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. But, right. but, but what you're going to do, the business he was in, uh, you just did business and went on your way. I mean, it wasn't so important where you were from. Uh, in those days, like it's becoming now. So yeah, he he was a mysterious guy, and when he one of it, it just happened that based in Tampa, where he entered this country, was the Royal American Carnival shows, and they were second in size to uh, uh, P.T. Barnum's show, Barnum and Bailey, and they had uh, ninety nine zero railway cars that took the carnival around the country. It was a major, major deal. So he was hired by them, and he ran concessions. And I was fortunate. The, he, the, the owner of the carnival, the carnival was a man named Carl Settlemeyer. And um, his son was Carl Settlemeyer, Jr. And I was fortunate to be able to interview the son when I wrote the book. And uh, and he recalls the day he met uh, Colonel Parker because he was a giant, you know, probably yeah. 300 pounds even then, very tall, very heavy. And so he was very helpful. The son was very helpful. But uh, it just, I mean, he was, Parker was just attracted to that carnival lifestyle from the get-go. And you could be anonymous, I mean, Probably most of the people on that in worked in the carnival were refugees from somewhere. What and he operated concessions, 
he operated a lemonade concession, and he went to the drugstore and bought citric acid to make it and and squeeze a little lemon into it. He um, had a dancing chicken act, and people would pay. He, he, he built a little stage, and the chickens would dance across the stage, but underneath it was a hot plate burning their feet. Uh, nobody ever knew that. They just liked the way the chickens danced. He sold hot dogs, and he would cut about an inch off one end and then the inch off the other end and put them at either end of the of the bun and fill the middle up with uh, mayonnaise and mustard. And the middle part he would throw down in the dirt by his concession stand. And when somebody complained that there was no meat in their hot dog, he would point down there and say, look like you dropped it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was just a con man from the beginning. Carnival's a very visual, and, and he was a very visual man. He, he had to see things to make it work. He, he couldn't stand music, didn't listen to music, didn't understand music. But so when he later in life, when he was interested in a performer, it, it was what visual image they presented. And he had certain requirements. He had noticed that the, one of the most popular concessions in the carnival was the girly show. Entirely visual. People didn't go to the girly show to have conversations. It was all visual. That's pretty much uh, shaped his life. Uh, he was a, a a carny, just as pure as he could be. And when that job ran out and, and uh, you know, it wasn't a full-time job because they, they didn't travel in the winter, uh, he got a job at the uh, Tampa Humane Society. One day, uh, a movie came to town, a guy named Joe, Spencer Tracy. And somebody called the Humane Society and said they needed a dog to put in the movie, and he showed up with it and started asking them questions about how they made movies and, 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 you know, how was the money handled? Where did you make the money when you made a movie? Did you make it on ticket sales? Did you make it on concessions? How did you make it? And then the second movie was one starring Gig Young, who was an upcoming actor at that time. But what he learned uh, working for carnivals was that concessions was, was where the money was. And uh, in later life with Elvis, he just he, he carried that to the extreme. But but he he learned about movies, and then he know he knew at that point he wanted to get into show business. And so uh, there was a new entertainer that I don't recall if he saw him in person or saw him on television. Eddie Arnold, country singer. Eddie Arnold wasn't your typical country singer. He was a very sophisticated guy, and his music was sophisticated by country music standards. I mean, he was a good dresser. He was smart. He was good-looking. So uh, Parker traveled to Nashville to introduce himself and somehow talked Eddie Arnold into letting him in as his promoter. And he did a good job promoting him until finally... Arnold found out that there were some things going on, and and he had to get rid of Parker. And by then, Parker was living just outside Nashville in a little uh, suburban community called Madison. And he had 
he had set up a a, a company that to promote acts. Promotion was was his thing at that time. Right, and Eddie Arnold had written most of his own songs, right? And and used describe how that's where uh, Parker learned about publishing and how important get, having the publishing rights could be. How much money was in that? Right, was when he was working right. with Eddie Arnold. Yeah. Well, wh- when when I talked to uh, young upcoming musicians, I explained to them that getting the record deal is just the start. Don't spend your advance money. Save it. That you don't really make money off of selling CDs or records at, at that era. You made it from song publishing and you made it from touring. And so many actors have, have had to file bankruptcy because they thought that their future was in selling CDs and records. And it's not. The people that, that bringing home the money are in publishing. And, and Parker realized that very early on because of Eddie Arnold. You're correct. And so you you mentioned that he started that that was Jamboree Attractions, right? Uh, the company that he started, and was H- Hank Snow was involved in that, right? Well, Hank Snow saw the success that he had had with Eddie Arnold, and so he came to him and asked if you know if he could help him. And so uh, Parker just hoodwinked Hank Snow. I mean, right. it's just <laughs> like you know. Uh, it, it 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 it's almost obscene what he did to him. But he, he first thing he said, well, we need to combine our companies, and we need to do this and that, and I'll need you to write me out a check. And uh, he had him write. Uh, Snow was writing him checks and doing this and that, and uh, and and Parker was just conning him left and right, because because he thought he was a dumb dumb Southerner, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, all of these people discovered this, and, and um, Snow had to go to a lawyer, and, and uh, you know they, they investigated Parker. And Elvis was the only one. I think at some point in his life he realized he was being snookered, but he never did anything about it. We can talk about those later years uh, in, in a few minutes, but Snow was a very respected country. Uh, singer at that time. Right, and, and Parker even used Snow uh, to help ingratiate himself to Elvis and his parents, right? Right, because his parents, I mean, Hank Snow, I mean, that's, that's uh, you couldn't get any better than that. He came across as a very honest man and and pure country, and he was those things. And so uh, once he had formed his partnership uh, they combined their companies, and they had this partnership with Snow. That's when he moved on uh, the contract with with Elvis. Uh, Scotty Moore was was Elvis's first manager. The reason that he became the manager was everybody knows about those great first songs, and and uh, that's all right, Mama, and and all of that great stuff that they did for Sam Phillips. Uh, but what Few people understood was that that Scotty and Bill, the the two members of the band that helped him define what became rock and roll, were not under contract. They got when the, all those records they put out, they did not get a penny in royalties. They thought they were a three-piece band. They thought they shared each a third of what was happening, but 
Stan Phillips only gave Elvis a contract. And so he told Scotty, you know, you can make extra money by being his manager. And he's going to need a manager. So Scotty had a contract drawn up and so on. But then, as they, as, as, you know, they went out on the road and, and uh, being his manager was more and more difficult. So, so when a radio personality uh, came along in Memphis and offered to take over the contract, uh, Elvis, uh, Sam talked uh, Elvis into doing that. So Scotty lost his management deal. And so Bob Neal became his manager. And so uh, Parker ended up conning Bob Neal out of a contract, is what he did. I mean, he was just a supreme con man. <laughs> yes. And his argument, he went and met with with, um, with Elvis's parents, Vernon and Gladys. And by the way, uh, Vernon, uh, my, my family is from the Tupelo area where Elvis was born and they lived uh, uh, Vernon worked for my family in one of my family's stores. Really? Yeah, and uh, Vernon uh, went to prison for writing a bad check. And then when he got out, when they moved to Memphis to start over again. So they thought, well, you know, it, it, it's going to be Hank Snow that's going to be promoting his career. We don't know who this fellow is, but if he he's Hank's partner, that's good enough for us. And so uh, he signed him up for a 25% commission. And so, yeah, that uh, Parker started maneuvering everything at that point. He approached several labels about buying out Elvis's contract from Sam Phillips and Sun Records. There was a certain amount of money that, that he wanted, and um, RCA was reluctant. He went to CVS, and they started talking like they would. And and he put together a deal. Uh, Sam got thirty five thousand. The whole deal, I think, was fifty thousand. But what was going on with Sam? Uh, he wasn't sure Elvis was going to do. They never all those early records. They they never were hits. People don't understand that. He didn't have a a number one hit record until he signed with uh, RCA. And all of his songs after that were recorded in Nashville, not Memphis. But what Sam had met, Kimmons Wilson, the founder of Holiday Inn. And uh, he had done a deal with him uh, for a motel or, or something. And and Kimmons offered to sell him. He said, this Holiday Inn's going to be big. You know, if you can come up with about $35,000, you, you, I can give you a lot of stock. And so he basically sold Elvis's contract to buy that stock in Holiday Inn, and that made Sam Phillips a multimillionaire. Yeah, and that was 1955. I looked up that that's three hundred thousand dollars in today's money. So thirty-five thousand right. doesn't sound like that much, but you know, it was a lot then. Yeah, yeah, it it really was. And and Sam was ambitious, and he started up the first all-female radio station, and he was a very talented man. But he saw opportunities to make money, and and um, and so so he he released uh, Elvis, and 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 probably made more money off of the stock than he would have made if he had kept Elvis. I don't know. That's that's debatable. Yeah. But uh, it's, it it just fascinated me to to start following 
in Parker's footsteps, and now he conned everybody. And uh, and and at one point, he he and and uh, Snow were traveling in the car, and something came up about the business. He said, "Well, at least we got Elvis's contract." And Parker said, "What do you mean we?" That was assigned to me, not to you. And that's when Snow went ballistic, and they started investigating his background, and and and, and it was a nasty breakup. But from that point on, Parker didn't need anyone but Elvis. Yeah, and the way the way that Scotty and Bill were treated was just brutal. Too, I mean, they were under the impression that they were partners with Elvis, and that they each had twenty five percent, and Elvis had fifty. And then once, you know, Colonel Parker comes on the scene, he realizes he's got to get rid of them. And uh, they end up being put on salary. And, I mean, you know, Scotty Moore, the way he gave up the contract and then was put on salary, it's just all, it's just such a sad story for him, how he was just broken down and then, you know, tossed aside. Well, he was. And and, uh, I don't know that Elvis... I mean, Scotty played a big role in defining those early stomp, uh, songs. With, yeah. with uh, you know, uh, when I was writing uh, the book with Scotty, Keith Richards called me and said, "I heard you've been looking for me," and uh, and he told me that that when they first, when the Stones first heard uh, Elvis, they were kids, and and that he wanted to be Scotty. Everybody wanted to be Elvis, but he wanted to do Scotty. He said his delicate finger picking was just beautiful thing to behold. He knew when to play and when not to play, and and he was a huge influence on Keith Richards. But uh, yeah, they here they were partners. They thought were in a band, and they weren't a band as it turned out. And when Parker got hold of Elvis, then the brutal truth came out, and they and and. Uh, Bill Black and Scotty, uh, uh, DJ didn't come in until a year later, but uh, they were when they were touring, they were paid $200 a week, and when they weren't touring, they were paid $100 a week, and Elvis was literally making millions at that point. Yeah, yeah, obviously Elvis bears a good share of the blame for how they were treated as well. Well, he, he does. I mean, he had to, to approve it. But uh, you know, as you know from reading the book, I had I had various uh, theories about his relationship with Parker. I think he was afraid of Parker. The thing about carnivals when they come to town, they find out who's really running things in a town. And if if you've got organized crime running girly shows, strip joints, uh, they have to deal with those people, put their show on. So if you work in a carnival, you learn the underbelly of every city that, that you stop in. You, you learn who's calling the shots, who the crooks are, and Parker understood all of that, and he made deals with some pretty unsavory people throughout his life. And I think Elvis was probably afraid of Parker. So that, that I know I know that he and Scotty and Bill were close, you know, right. and. And it doesn't make sense for him to turn on Scotty and Bill, but he did turn on them. Right. Yeah, you you talk a lot in the book about suspected ties or relationships that uh, Tom Parker must have had with organized crime in New Orleans and, well, I guess back to Tampa even probably, right, and in Memphis. 
Oh, right, sure. Tampa, uh, Memphis, uh, New Orleans, uh, and then later Nevada, uh, Las Vegas. Right, and, uh, and you know how he ends up being a colonel is that he was given that title by Jimmy Davis, the governor of Louisiana, and you know the question is how exactly did he know Jimmy Davis well enough <laughs> that Jimmy Davis made him a colonel? It's all kind of mysterious, it, right? Yeah, uh, uh, Davis sort of had to to uh, deal with unsavory types in uh, New Orleans and and uh, throughout Louisiana, and so. Uh, but people don't understand Southern states: Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, Alabama. The governors granted colonel status to people that contributed to their campaigns or who did favors for them. Okay. Um, and and so if you're stopped for speeding, you pull out your colonel card and you're let go. If if you kill somebody, you pull out your colonel's card <laughs> and you you let go. And so he was that kind of colonel. He did favors uh, for Davis, and uh, at that time, Carlos Macello was the was the crime syndicate boss in New Orleans. And I have to tell you a funny story. I, I, I went to the University of Mississippi, and um, my first couple of years, well, I, my first year I started up a rock and roll band. And so I didn't get a car for a couple of years, so I hitched hike home to the Delta. In those days, uh, the uh, New Orleans Mafia controlled crime, and, and at that time uh, pinball machines were controlled by the mafia. That was a huge money-making enterprise. And and they would muscle people to put their pinball machines into their establishments and because uh, people were afraid to say no. But uh, Marcello, his organization controlled crime from New Orleans up, up to Highway 82, which runs across Mississippi from Greenville to the other side of the state, into Alabama, and south of that was Italian Mafia. North of that was uh, Memphis Mafia. And I was hitchhiking home one day from the University of Mississippi. My first—it was my first summer, and I was 17 years old, and I had on a beanie, which meant my head had been shaved. <laughs> that was the custom. If you're a freshman, they shaved your head, and you wore a beanie. And I was hitchhiking home, and this big black car pulled over to give me a lift. And I got in, and it was this guy, sort of a heavy-set, tough-looking guy with diamond rings on almost every finger. And, and so we stopped um, at a restaurant in Indianola, Mississippi, and that's where B.B. King is from. And he bought me a piece of pie and, and, and a Coke, and he had coffee, and, and then up the road uh, where I needed to turn south, he let me out of the car. Well, later I saw pictures in the paper of Carlos, and it was Carlos who picked me up. And he was just running. That's his boundary. He was running it, checking in with the pinball, checking on the pinball machines, making sure all the money was being collected. And I was actually given a lift by Carlos Marcello. <laughs> wow. Now, who have you sold tomatoes to? A lot of food stand and grocery stores. Is your testimony that in the last five or six years you've been going around to grocery stores 
in the New Orleans area and selling tomatoes? I've been to food stands and markets. When was the last stand. time you were to a food stand? Oh, I was at a food stand last week. To sell tomatoes? Well, not exactly. I go there to see them. They already join, and uh, I bought some fruits myself. In other words, you were just shopping for some fruit yourself? Yes. I'm asking you about you. You're supposed to be earning money, according to the information you give the internal revenue, of 20000 approximately a year yes. selling tomatoes. Now, where do you sell these tomatoes? Supermarkets and grocery and fruit stands. All right. Would you tell us the last sale that you made to a supermarket? The last sale I made? Yeah. I don't make sales every day. I just, they're customer of mine. You, you said they're a customer of yours. Would you name the, the, the largest customer you have? Well, they're all large. I couldn't tell you unless I looked at the books. All right. Would you tell me one of the customers that you sell tomatoes to? And you're in this business for six years. You've covered the Internal Revenue Service that you've been selling tomatoes. Now, I want to know who you're selling the tomatoes to. Isn't it a fact that it's a phony job? You don't sell tomatoes at all? This is no. just a way of legitimizing illegal no, income? Sir. No, sir. It's not a phony job. All right. Then tell me who you sell the tomatoes to. I sell to a lot of people in your office. You haven't been able to mention one. So my point is it, it, it crime was pervasive then. And to be in entertainment, you had to deal with organized crime. Right. There's just no, no way around it. So Parker developed that talent pretty early on while traveling with, with the uh, carnival. Uh, and the carnival didn't always deal with organized crime. Sometimes they'd just be town punks. But they'd have to deal with an unsavory element. In every town they went into. I mean, every town had a mayor, but that usually wasn't who, who was controlling the town. So he learned all those tricks and, and learned the underbelly of American society. And he was attracted to it. And why, you know, like I said, he, he hated music. And he was attracted to Elvis visually. He thought he put on a good show, like the girls and the girly shows. And he saw people react to him, women react to him the way uh, women, men reacted to the girly shows. So he thought that's somebody he could make some money on. But he was wheeling and dealing under the table every which way the whole time. Right. And so here you have this mysterious uh, grifter who inserts himself basically into what was the birth of rock and roll and takes someone who could have probably been a great artist and just steers his career in completely the wrong direction, I guess, from most people's perspective. Uh, and you talked about how he was introduced to the film industry when he worked for the Humane Society in Tampa. Right. And so, I mean, that's, so he right away wants to take Elvis to Hollywood. And, right. And you, you, in the book, it says, you know, the first three film contract with Paramount Pictures, Parker himself made $112,500, which is basically a million dollars. Right. today's money so that's a nice payday just for the just for parker right there yeah well what he did uh that, that fascinates me okay that was his first movie love me tender he got the script that had no music in it none so he was relieved elvis wanted to be an actor he thought he that was something he could do and it was important to him. Love me tender, love me dear, tell me you are 
out of the great Southwest comes the sensational adventure of the notorious Reno Brothers and the girl they fought over, starring Richard Egan as Vance Reno, who came back from the wars to claim his bride, Deborah Paget as Kathy, who loved one Reno brother but married another, and introducing Elvis Presley as Clint Reno, who loved his brother but also loved his brother's girl. So it's Parker that, that convinced the movie company that uh, that they had to have music. And he told Elvis, I mean, at that time in the 40s, the biggest stars in the 50s was Roy Rogers playing his guitar and on top of his horse and singing. And he told Elvis he's going to have to be Roy Rogers and he's going to have to play his guitar and sing while he rode his horse in Love Me Tender, which is a very serious story. Mm-hmm. storyline and Elvis refused that's the first time he refused Parker but what Parker started doing from that point on obviously they did add music Parker won he always won so so when Elvis got a movie script he Parker set up a publishing company in Elvis's name and Elvis only got 15% of it Parker and his friends got the rest of it and he formed an association with Hill and Ranks, which was a, a large publishing company in New York. So when, whenever, throughout his career, whenever Elvis got a movie script, Parker sent the script to Hill and Ranks and had their songwriters write songs for the movie. And uh, Elvis benefited a little bit, but Parker benefited big time. Cause, as we said, publishing was everything. And Parker was just raking in money. And, I mean, you know, and the sad part was uh, his second film was Loving You. Director was Hal Cantor, who who I interviewed for the book. He didn't much care for Parker. But he told me, and he's an experienced director, he said that Elvis could have had a serious career as an actor. He said he had the chops. He could have done it. But Parker would not... Uh, would not allow him to. And and as time went by, the movies got worse and worse, and it was just all about the publishing company churning out these songs and Parker making money and, and Elvis making a little bit of money. But during that period, uh, Elvis was offered uh, the role opposite Barbara Streisand in A Star is Born. Right. And Parker turned it down. He was offered the role in West Side Story. Parker turned it down. Cantor, the movie maker, thought Elvis could have handled that fine. And um, he really cheated Elvis out of, a, out of a career that offered him. Elvis wasn't a songwriter. A lot of songs have got his name on it, but that's because Parker put it, his name on it. He, he, he wouldn't let uh, Elvis record the songs unless the songwriter... Uh, named him as the co-writer. Right. But uh, that the movies was where he felt he could be an artist. He, he really felt that. And you know what? I go back and I look at that early stuff and that raw energy he had and the way he connected with moviegoers, uh, and I think he could have done it. Uh, I asked Scotty Moore about it, and and he he said that that you know he had the same opinion that he Scotty said he could have been a great actor, and and Parker cheated him out of that basically. 
And I've always wondered if Elvis ever tried to write songs or if he just never even bothered or just didn't think he had any skill to do that. But it's really strange to me that he never wrote any songs. Yeah, he. Um, I'm sure he tried. And, uh, of course, when they started out, all of those songs, I mean, basically what they did, uh, they took a country song and with, with Sam Phillips at Sun and played it. And, and a bluesy style, which made it a, a rock. And, uh, or they would take a blues song and play it in a country style. And that's how they became successful. None of that was original material. No. And, uh, but just very original, it, very original, a very original take on, on something so that it was kind of reinvented. Yeah, they took successful songs that had been done in another genre. And and they put their take on it and reinvented the song, and that was their genius. And Scotty and Bill played a huge role in that. Yeah, it does. Because that's about music. Elvis caught on real quick, and uh, you know it, it's not that complicated. Okay, here's a country song. We're gonna go blues. Here's a blues song. We're gonna go country. It's a pretty simple idea, but uh, that's that's where rock and roll started. Yeah. And uh, but Elvis, as far as I knew. He never wrote any songs, and neither did Scotty. So they weren't songwriters. They were musicians. They were artists. And and that's another area where Parker just got lucky. Because he, you know, he'd get songs and, and, and coerce songwriters into naming Elvis as co-writer. And, and Elvis never wrote a song in his life. And it was Parker getting the money for the most part. It's just, uh, after, after finishing that book, I felt very disturbed for a number of months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It's so, so Elvis is in the middle of this, this big film career, and then to which the music is just kind of secondary. And then the really confusing thing is that he ends up enlisting in the Army. And why on earth would he do that? But you have a couple of interesting theories in well, the book, um, right. I, I love the I love the theory that the colonel needed to put Elvis on ice for a while because uh, you know I mean already even back then he already had his gambling addiction was in full effect right and so uh, your theory is sort of that he needed to take care of some debts and uh, was maybe in fear of losing his contract with Elvis so he wanted to put him on ice for a while is that sort of the theory oh uh, absolutely he he lost i mean he could easily lose a million dollars and and in the in the late 50s at a at uh, at a casino in vegas easily now and then you multiply that by today's dollars and that's a huge sum of money it was then so as as you know when you owe a casino and particularly if it's mobbed on and <laughs> And all of them were my own then. Um, then they say, where's the money? And you say, well, I, I don't have it. I, I manage Elvis. And they say, well, you know, uh, maybe you need to give us his contract. Elvis Presley no longer has that rock and roll beat. The tempo is up, two, three, four for Private Presley. He's at Camp Chaffee, Arkansas, beginning his two-year Army hitch courtesy of the Memphis Draft Board. Like any ex-civilian raw recruit, the king of rock and roll will be keeping time to non-hip bugle calls. Involuntarily retired, a gyrating guitarist's departure from the public eye left his blue jean fans all shook up, so we hear.
but Elvis doesn't seem to mind at all. And so uh, that's, I, I think it's pretty clear. He, uh, Parker started telling people that he was tired of Elvis and he was going to sell his contract. Uh, then I think he realized that, well, Elvis could be drafted, and, but he had been approached by the, by the different uh, services that if Elvis would uh, enlist, they would he could write his own ticket. They would use him for troop morale, and it'd be a public relations gift to the Army or the Air Force, uh, the Navy, whatever. And and so, yeah, I'm firmly convinced. There was nothing kosher about his induction. You you The, the draft board chairman went out to the, his mansion to meet with him and told him his, his number was coming up. And so I, I, I had access to his selective service records. I poured over them, and uh, there's no indication that he was ever drafted. It, he never went for a, a pre-induction physical, all the things that happens when you're drafted. And so it, it, it's, it's real, really clear to me that he had Elvis take advantage of the offers from the Air Force to not – you know, not put him in danger and let him do pretty much what he wanted to so they could benefit from the publicity. And he could tell the mob bosses, well, you know, he's he's drafted. Nothing I can do about that. His contract's worth nothing right now. <laughs> you know. I mean it just it 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 was a perfect con. Elvis, you know, knew he was might be drafted, although you know, I did my research, and, and and before they drafted a white man man in the South, then they would draft every eligible black man. Right. And so uh, it was highly. I mean, the draft was very politicized. I mean, it it was so unlikely he would ever be drafted. Uh, he, I mean, he was rich, he was famous, and, and that just didn't happen there. Yeah, I, so think, anyway. I think it would be perfectly reasonable to just assume that if Elvis Presley wanted to stay out of the service at that time, he easily could have been kept out of it. And so it's very confusing. as t- And Elvis very much did not want to enlist, right? So No, no, he, he, he didn't want to leave his career, and which he basically had to do. And uh, people told him, well, if you leave for two years or, or three years, whatever it turns out to be, you know, you're not going to have a career when you come back. But Parker said, no, it's it's going to be even bigger when you come back. But uh, Parker had to get him out of the country. Now, he didn't like him going out of the country because he couldn't leave the country. He had no paperwork, remember? Yeah. And and that also cheated Elvis out of a lot of money from from European trips tours, Asian tours, whatever. He was popular all over the world. Yeah, yeah, he never, Elvis never played a single concert outside of North America. He played a couple of shows in Canada and that's it. He did. Never never went overseas ever in his entire life to play any shows, which is insane considering how big of a star he was. It it is insane. And it's Parker. Parker couldn't go with him and he knew somebody would make a deal with him while he's over there. (laughs) And, And Parker would be the loser. So, you know, it's it's such a shame. I mean, Elvis. From all my conversations with Scotty and about Elvis, I, he's somebody I would have liked a lot. I mean, he had a sense of humor, and he just had this 
natural gift to sing and and Parker, I think, is is responsible for a lot of the bad things that happened to him in his life. And I mean, we talked about how you know, you know uh, when he enlisted, maybe that was because the colonel was in danger of losing. You know, he was his gambling addiction was so out of control that uh, you know, like you said, the mob could have easily said, you know, we're going to take over Elvis's contract. And then in 1967. All of a sudden, Parker doubles his management fee to 50%, which is completely right. outrageous. And you have right. to wonder, why on earth would Elvis have ever gone along with that? And I love your theory that, you know, finally, Parker did lose his 25% cut. And maybe he went to Elvis hat in hand and said, hey, look, you know, it's all gone. I need another 25% or I'm done. So right. maybe he never really had 50%. He just <laughs> had to get a new 25% when he lost the other one, right? <laughs> right, yeah. He may have had to give up the, his his 25% at the point Elvis left the country, but also that what that gave Parker was a chance. It gave him two years to make all these deals about his comeback. I mean, they were big deals, too. And and uh, uh, he... he, he Elvis was in good shape financially when he got out of the army, and because Parker was uh, was working it, you know. And so, yeah, fifty percent commission. I mean, that's just unbelievable. And it doesn't make any sense that Elvis would have agreed to it either, right? Unless, unless Parker said, "Look, well, you know, I've lost twenty five percent of your earnings to those bad guys in Vegas, and and I can't keep managing you unless you give me twenty five percent too." That that's the way it looks to me. Yeah, it makes it certainly makes a lot more sense than the idea that the colonel would just say, "Hey, I need fifty percent now," and Elvis would say, "Okay." <laughs> that right. doesn't make any sense. But the idea that it makes a lot of it seems perfectly believable that if the mob now owned twenty five percent of Elvis, then the colonel gave Elvis his sob story, and you know, Elvis then went along with giving him. His, another twenty five percent, but and and I think he probably explained it to Elvis, and right, that made right. Elvis even more scared, more paranoid. I mean, when Elvis, even when he would go out around Memphis, when he well, he had rent a movie theater for his friends, and and they would go, uh, or when he would go ride his motorcycle. I mean, he would have a pistol in his belt, one in each boot. Uh, he would be carrying three or four pistols every time he left. And uh, so that's that's somebody that's afraid of more than just a fan. He he was afraid for his life. And and when he died, uh, his father admitted to a number of people that he felt Elvis had been murdered. Well, I mean, I read you know that by the end of his life, Elvis had a twenty thousand dollar per month drug habit. But when I read that that figure, I thought, yeah, but that's. That's peanuts compared to you know the the colonel's gambling addiction. Right. You know it seems like a large a large amount of money that Elvis was was spending, but it's nothing compared to the you know the colonel was losing millions of dollars literally in the casinos uh, just squandering all the money um, that Elvis had made. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so then. The you know one of the most disturbing maybe probably the most disturbing thing that Colonel did would be the buyout deal with RCA, where he basically was selling Elvis's entire legacy out from under him, and the way you describe these buyout deals are 
it will usually be for an artist who's retiring, probably dying, doesn't have any heirs. Uh, right. Here, Elvis was still in his 30s, and the colonel was going to sell his entire legacy to RCA uh, right. behind his back. And, our, you know, if RCA probably were fully aware that it was completely corrupt and, and, you know, just wrong in every way what they were up to. And so they were in collusion, I guess. And this shows how desperate the current, I mean, you know, this, this, knowing the gambling addiction and seeing how, I mean, this is the move of a desperate man, this, this bio deal with RCA. Well, certainly. And I mean, it's after Elvis's death, uh, you know, the courts get involved and (laughs) I mean, it, you know, the judge just comes right out and says this is he, the judge said it shocks the conscience of the court <laughs> this deal that the colonel was making um with RCA but really in the end they got away with it because well, sure. the colonel got a payout 2 million dollar payout RCA well you say they they ended up having to pay the estate $100,000 annually for 10 years does that mean so did RCA keep the rights like you say it's 700 chart hit songs that right. the colonel was selling the rights back to RCA. Um, right. And that, that would have been Lisa Marie's inheritance, right? It would have been, yeah. And so did RCA actually get to keep those rights then and just pay the estate $100,000 a year for 10 years? Is that how it worked? Well, I, you know, to be honest, like as you said, it's been a long time since I, I wrote the book, and I don't recall how that was ever uh, resolved, but... but uh, Elvis didn't have much money when he died, right. and uh, and he was he was hurting, and uh, primarily because of Parker. And then after he died, Parker Parker just went into overdrive. You know, yeah, Lisa Marie uh, got the shaft on it from Parker, and and you gotta you gotta feel sorry for. Her. I mean, that's a big reason they ended up opening Graceland. Uh, making it a tourist attraction the way they did because they needed to find some way to to make money since (laughs) the colonel gambled it all away right right yeah yeah the the rca deal was was so outrageous i mean the 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 court in the i think in the in the court case they described it as collusion fraud conspiracy misrepresentation bad faith overreaching unethical fraudulently obtained and against all industry standards and that was about the colonel's 50 percent cut too right. they were also looking at that yeah so then they all but then they all end up suing each other and the colonel actually got another two million dollar payout in the end so really he in the end he got away with everything and, and you know even got more money so it's well he always did get away with it yeah i think any aspiring musician should read this book to learn about the music business, to learn about the, the bad things to look for, because it's all there. You just study uh, Colonel Parker's life, and you can see everything that an artist should be afraid of. Yeah, I, there are there are so many stories in the history of rock and roll like this, but obviously the Colonel is the worst I mean that that last deal he was making with RCA, he would have made more money than Elvis on the deal. So now he was even over his fifty percent <laughs> right. take. Right. 
And I mean, I love the story of the having fun with Elvis on stage record that the, the Colonel put together, which was just an album of Elvis talking in between songs right. in concert. And, you know, Parker just made that deal all on his own and pocketed all the money, I think, from that. I mean, well, a, an album of just Elvis, his banter between songs. That's what all right. the record was. <laughs> yeah. Before the evening is over, I will have made a complete total fool of myself. I hope you get a kick out of watching it. Oh, wow. 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 Yeah, I mean, it, it. you would think as much money that Parker made off of Elvis that he would have a heart. But it was all about the dollar. I mean, it, it's the worst case I've ever seen. The, the music business is a dirty business, always has been since then. And you, you just can't get around that. But this was, I mean, for... For Elvis Presley to be treated this way, somebody who, who redefined American music, it's just beyond sad. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, this is why I, I always say I don't believe in karma, because, you know, where's Colonel Tom Parker's karma <laughs> in the end? Right. He just right. got away with everything, so. He, he's the con man who got away. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your Sartorius or... um? Any of your other books or any of the other stuff that you're publishing? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to mention Sartorius Literary Group. We're probably one of the largest publishers in the South right now. We do trade books and, and fiction and biographies, and, and I'm putting a focus now on music books. And uh, I've got one just released a couple of weeks ago called Memphis Man, uh, Flying High, Laying Low, and by Don Nix, who was an instrumental player in the Stax Records days, and he was friends with George Harrison and produced Joe Cocker and uh, Freddie King and Albert King and uh, played in an in, uh, instrumental group called the Marquis in the early 60s, and he's, and I'm publishing his memoir, and he, he took a lot of pictures, and, and he's got pictures of George Harrison that he took at his mansion, and, and he, whenever Don went to went overseas, he would stay at, at George Harrison's house. They got to be friends. But his book is just coming out, and I highly recommend it to anyone. And um, we recently published one of my books, Mojo Triangle, which makes the theory that if you draw a line from, from Memphis to New Orleans and then back to Nashville and then across to Memphis, it's a geographical triangle where all of America's original music was created. Rock and roll, blues, jazz, country, and so uh, I interviewed a lot of the people that made that that uh, music, and uh, and wrote the book Mojo Triangle, and uh, and I'm quite quite proud of it. But um, people can find us at SartorisLiterary.com, S-A-R-T-O-R-I-S Literary.com, and they can see all the various. Uh, books that we publish. Yeah, and you were generous enough to send me, you sent me both of those books, the Don Nix and the Mojo Triangle. I'll definitely be reading those. Okay, um, yeah. It, and it and you, wrote, you wrote a second book with Scotty Moore recently too, right? Right. Well, the, the first book, I mean, Scotty is so unassuming. The first book, um, well, I'll tell you how the contract came about. I, I, I published the book with uh, the music imprint of, of uh, Simon & Schuster, it was called Shermer Books, 
and uh, got the contract for uh, going back to Memphis. And, and while I was still working on it, the editor and publisher came to Nashville, where I was then living, to meet me for the first time. And they asked me, said, well, what, what book do you want to do next? And I said, well, I'm not through with this one. They said, well, when you get through, which one do you want to do next? And I said, I, I want to work with Scotty Moore on his biography. And the publisher stood up and stuck out his hand and said, deal. <laughs> so, so I made a deal for the Scotty, Scotty Moore book. But Scotty, when we wrote it, his, his condition was that I write it in the third person because he didn't want people to think he was bragging. <laughs> by saying, I did this and I did that. So I wrote his biography in the third person. He opened all his records to me. I interviewed everybody he was associated with. So then as the years went by, you know, almost 20 years later, I said, Scotty, let's do that first person book that I wanted to do in the beginning. And, and I said, I'll go back through all of my interviews. We'll do new interviews and we will make it your first person memoir. And we did. And it, it's called Scott, Scotty and Scotty and Elvis. And um, I highly recommend it. He, I think it's his favorite of the two. But uh, Sartori still sells the, the first one, and University Press of Mississippi sells the new book. But uh, I highly recommend it, and it gives more of a feeling of who Scotty was, because you really need a first-person narrative to tell a story like that. And he's such an important figure in the history of rock and roll. Um, I hope people realize... You know, he's huge. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he just uh, like Keith Richards said, he invented the parts that we copied to make rock and roll. I mean, he is just right. He's huge. I mean, he'd be his place in history would be well deserved just for for what he did with Elvis and and the beginning songs. But for guitarist, I mean, he is a god because he was the first. He just invented this way of, of playing music and more importantly showing when not to play and uh, and how to use the, the white so-called white space in music and then when to come in and, and make your point and that stuff. So he is a huge figure in music. And I, as a matter of fact, I talked to him yesterday. I was just calling to wish him happy holidays. And he, he sounds very, very good, very strong. I'm sitting here thinking I wonder if he would talk to me <laughs> for the show. Uh, I don't know if he w will. If I, uh, I will mention it, and, and if he will, I'll get in touch with you. But his his memory is sort of fading on him now. Right. And, and I think he's he, he feels sort of insecure giving interviews at this point. Okay. But, but uh, a couple of years ago, for sure. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I missed, I missed, yeah. Yeah, well, he's uh, he's in his eighties, probably, right? You're right. Yeah, yeah. He's the he's the last survivor of the invention of rock and roll. Only one left. Yeah, and such a nice guy. How did he end up making a living? You know, for all these well, years. Well, he uh, he went to Nashville and bought a studio, and he uh, engineered and helped produce Ringo Starr's first album. Ringo came there. And he worked with Dolly Parton, and he worked with a lot of people uh, in his studio. And then he would play on songs, and and so he stayed in music. But a lot of the people 
that met him didn't know he had worked with Elvis. Mm. But he he was a much sought after for his guitar playing and his expertise as an engineer and as a producer. So the fact that he never financially benefited from all those great records is is just a crying shame. Yeah, it's it's criminal, really. So uh, so I urge people to go buy his books. That's all right, Elvis. he gets royalties on the Kindle version. The others are all used now, and he doesn't get royalties. And the new book, Scotty and Elvis, is available in hardback, paperback, uh, ebook, everything. If, if, if you want to help Scotty, buy something that he'll get a royalty from. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, James, for talking to me. It was very generous of you. Um, I really enjoyed it. Well, you know what? I really enjoyed it too, and I'm I'm sorry I was so difficult to get in touch with. But no, I just... no, you weren't difficult at all. <laughs> it was, I just was very glad that you got back to me at all. I mean, so. Well, I always knew I was going to, but you didn't know that. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, you were you patient. Know, yeah, I you mean... were patient to get my answer. So that that <laughs> that says a lot about you. <laughs> yeah, I I just hope I didn't bother you too much uh, trying to get your to get you to do it but i'm i'm really glad you did and um, well i i'm glad i did too i haven't talked about this book in in a long time so i'm i'm i've enjoyed talking about it it's it's such an interesting book i mean fascinating stuff really so well i'm glad you like it all right well enjoy the rest of your day and again thank you thank you so much well thank you like i said i've really enjoyed talking to you you're a good interviewer Oh, gr- wow, great. <laughs> I try. Well, I'm in my blue. Remember, to go again. What a rainbow turned the cloud away. Well, I'm in my blue. The moon turned to go again. You'll be back within my arms, stay. Well, I'm in
All right, so I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did, and once again, I really want to thank author James Dickerson for joining me for this episode to talk about his book, which is called Colonel Tom Parker, The Curious Life of Elvis Presley's Eccentric Manager. And I think that title, those words, curious and eccentric, that was just James being nice. (laughs) He might have wanted to use stronger language, but curious and eccentric, I guess that's one way to put it. So like I said, you can get the book on Amazon, the Kindle version for $15.99, and check out the Sartorius Literary Group for some other really cool books like James talked about that he's been publishing. And I mean, I just think... The story of Colonel Tom Parker and what he did with Elvis Presley and where he took Elvis Presley's career and what happened to all the money. Very interesting story that maybe a lot of people don't know about. So I really wanted to do an episode about it. And I'm really glad that James was willing to come on and help me tell the story because his book is just an amazing document. And now to play us out. What does that mean? To play us out. I don't know what that means to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. I'm going to leave you with the Blue Moon Boys, Elvis, Scotty, and Bill, Scotty Moore and Bill Black, playing, this is their first appearance, on the Louisiana Hayride, October 16th, 1954, performing That's All Right. Till next time. Lucky Strike guest time now. Just a few weeks ago, a young man from Memphis, Tennessee, recorded a song on the Sun label. And in just a matter of a few weeks, that record has skyrocketed right up the charts. It's really doing good all over the country. He's only 19 years old. He has a new distinctive style, Elvis Presley. Let's give him a nice hand. We've been singing his songs around here for weeks and weeks and weeks. Elvis, how are you this evening? It's fine. How are you, sir? You all geared up with your band there to, to let us hear your songs. Uh, well, I'd like to say how happy we are to be down here. It's a real honor for us to be, get a chance to appear on the Louisiana Hayride. We're going to do a song for you. You got anything else to say, sir? No, I'm ready. We're going to do a song for you. We've got on Sun Record. It goes something like this. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right with you. That's all right, Mama. Just a handy way to do it. That's all right. That's all right. She done told me, Papa done told me too. Son, that guy you were fooling with, she ain't no good for you, but that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, Mama, Mama, anyway, do. That's all right. That's all right.
Well, sir, to be honest with you, we just stumbled upon it. I mean, you we were... stumbled upon it. Well, you're mighty lucky, you know. Thank you. They've been looking for something new in the folk music field for a long time, and I think well, you've got it. We hope so. All right, how about flipping the record over there? That's Sun recording and doing the other side for us. Blue moon. Blue moon. Blue moon. Keep shining bright. Blue moon to keep on the shining bright. She gonna bring me back to my baby tonight. Blue moon, keep shining bright. I said blue moon, I can talk you to keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. I said blue moon, I can talk you to keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. Oh, well, I hit the woods on the one more late night. Stars shining bright. Whisper on high love, say goodbye Blue moon, I can talk to you, keep on shining I, I say shine on the one that's gone, hey, let me blue It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.